Hello and welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is Journeys from the Past, and my name is Andy Davis. The purpose of this podcast is to inspire listeners to courageous, sacrificial actions to make progress in the two journeys, the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of evangelism and missions by learning the stories of our brothers and sisters in Christ from the past. So we are going to be talking today about the next era of church history. Last time we discussed the advance of the gospel from the time of Christ and the apostles until the conversion of Constantine. So the staggering advance of the gospel over the first 300 years, just one of, one of the most amazing facts of church history, is that in such a short amount of time, the followers of Jesus Christ were able to take the gospel against all the persecution, against all of the martyrdom. As Tertullian said, the blood of martyrs was seed for the church to advance the gospel, to win lost souls from Satan's dark kingdom into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The advancement until in the year 313, Constantine declared himself to be a Christian. We have the Edict of Milan and religious toleration was declared throughout the Roman Empire, making Christianity a legal religion. Now today we're going to talk about the imperial church and the battle for orthodoxy, specifically right doctrine when it came to the person of Jesus Christ. Now what do we mean by the imperial church? Well, after he became emperor, Constantine increasingly brought imperial power to bear in church matters. He didn't just make Christianity a legal religion and that there was religious tolerance throughout the Roman Empire, but he himself strongly favored Christianity and he exerted imperial powers to benefit Christianity as he saw it. So, for example, he convened the Council of Nicaea to resolve questions of Christology, which is the study of the doctrine of Christ, which were dividing Christianity at that point. He wanted the, the Roman Empire to be united around Christianity, and he didn't want to see this doctrinal division, but he used his imperial power to convene the council at Nicaea and brought in 300 bishops to discuss Christian theology. We're going to talk more about this council of Nicaea in a minute, but for those bishops that came, to many of them it seemed like heaven on earth. Um, they remembered the recent history of persecution just a few years before that under Diocletian and under other Roman emperors and times when they had to convene in secret for fear of arrest and torture. Many still bore the wounds that they received in those dark days. One of the bishops that was called to the Council of Nicaea was crippled. Another had lost an eye. Instead of being outlaws now, Constantine honored them greatly. He paid for their travel. He dined with them. So like I said, for them, perhaps it seemed like heaven on earth. But this was in many ways an ominous new union. The wedding of secular power with that of the church created a precedent that would continue to play out with devastating effects over the next 12 centuries at least. Even in Constantine's time, many church leaders saw the danger of Constantine transferring to the Christian bishops and pastors the tax revenues that had formerly been paid to pagan priests under the Roman Empire. This created, of course, a false motive for many to become pastors, to enter the ministry, namely that they would get money, that they would be paid. 
and worst of all, the influx of half-converted or even totally unconverted pagans into the ranks of the church was de devastating to the genuine health and unity of local churches throughout the Roman Empire. The social benefits that came from appearing to be ardent Christians muddied the waters of church life. And this pattern would continue throughout the history of both the Roman Catholic Church in the West and the Orthodox Church in the East. It would get much worse as the papacy got stronger and more politically powerful. It would include things like mass conversions done by Christian kings like Charlemagne after winning battles against pagan Germanic armies and then offering them a convert or die option. They could all be mass baptized in some river or they could be slaughtered. It would result in a mostly unconverted Christendom in time in Europe that would challenge all genuine preachers of the true gospel and leaders of the true church of Jesus Christ with mass nominalism, with people who really weren't Christians but they were under the name of Christ. And many corrupt church leaders, popes, cardinals, archbishops, priests, lined their pockets and enriched their earthly lives with all the usual allurements of the world, power, possessions, pleasures. But in His grace and wisdom, our sovereign God would maneuver matters again and again to achieve His hidden and mysterious purposes, namely His own glory in the salvation of every single elect person in every one of those centuries, in every generation of church history. And we will get to see all of those stories when we get to heaven. Now let's zero in. That's what we mean by the imperial church. Let's zero in on this battle for orthodoxy or right doctrine. That's what orthodoxy means, the battle for right doctrine. Now with the conversion of Constantine, the bloody parade of martyrs temporarily came to a halt. There would be martyrs again in the future. But at this point, they weren't coming at the hands of the Roman uh, imperial majesty. But the church was not in any way done fighting battles. Paul actually said the war that we fight is not the worldly battle that soldiers fight with physical weapons. Rather, he said, the weapons we have have divine power to demolish strongholds, he said. And what are those strongholds? False ideas, false doctrines. He says we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion or pretense raised against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. So, the early church had to fight for its very survival at this point, not only against vicious persecutions, now that's done, but they had to fight for its very survival by standing firm in their confession of Christ doctrinally. They had to stand firm against insidious false doctrines by fighting for a clear articulation of the truth based on Scripture, the truth of the gospel. What good would the courage of the martyrs be if they were dying for a lie? Will courageous heretics be honored in heaven? Or rather, will it not be on plain display that those who stood firm against false teaching were every bit as honorable as those who died in the Colosseum confessing Jesus is Lord. That very statement itself, Jesus is Lord, came under attack through the first five centuries of the church as the people of God came to grips with the complex doctrine central to Christianity of the full deity and humanity 
of Jesus Christ. And then, I think subsequently, having established that, or in process of establishing that, the true nature of the Godhead itself, of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God in three persons. This orthodox faith had to be defined in words, and those words will be confirmed with a far more certain display of the nature of God in heaven when at last we see him face to face. But in the meantime, the church had to see through a glass darkly, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. That means truth had to be mediated in words and in phrases that were hammered out by theologians at councils and then defended fiercely against attacks and dilutions over decades of controversy. The heretics, false teachers, used simple biblical language to establish their false concepts of the Godhead and of the incarnation of the Son of God. But the defenders of the faith did the hard work of theology. They weaved together creeds that included both affirmations and denials that snared the heretics in a net of truth. That's a language that comes from John Piper in his book, 21 Servants of Sovereign Joy. And it's a great image. They wove together a net that would catch the false doctrines and keep the church free from error. Now, in this early stretch of fighting for orthodoxy, God raised up a number of heroes, but none more famous than Athanasius. Athanasius, in his strong battle against Arianism, now, Arianism is the doctrine that Jesus is a lesser God, a created being, not fully God with a capital G, but a smaller God with a lowercase g, not co-equal with the creator and ruler of the universe. Arianism was named for a pastor in Alexandria named Arius, who sometime around the year 318 began preaching his views. One slogan that's tied to Arianism was this, there was when he was not. In other words, there was a time that the Son of God did not exist. He was created by God the Father. Because of Arius's wildly, widely popular appeal, his winsome personality, and his clever tactics of putting doctrine into easy-to-remember songs that were sung by lay people, by dock work workers unloading ships and school children in their classes. Well, his views spread rapidly. He was very popular and he was a good marketer. Furthermore, with the large sudden influx of half-converted pagans into the church, keep in mind that those pagans were all polytheists. They believed in polytheism and so it was easy for them to worship multiple gods. So the idea of a God with a big G and a God with a little G in English, we would put it that way, but, you know, a, a central God and then a created God, etc., kind of lined up with their understanding of theology. So Arianism more readily accorded with their basic polytheistic mindset. The mysteries of the Trinity, the full understanding of the incarnation of God the Son are extremely difficult for us to conceive of and very difficult to articulate. But if Arianism had not been defeated, the gospel itself would have been lost. Now to bring that to today's world, today's Jehovah's Witnesses are just modern day Arians. That's what they teach, that Jesus is a created being. 
And Christian pastors and evangelists all over the world do daily battle against Jehovah's Witnesses. I've had them come to my door. They ring the doorbell and we talk. So also Mormon uh, missionaries spread a concept of a God and of Christ that's essentially polytheistic. The original Mormon false teacher, Joseph Smith, taught of Christ and of God. What we are, he once was, what he is, we may become. That's Mormonism. And Muslims have a respect for Jesus as sinless and as a pure prophet of God, but they absolutely stumble on the doctrine of the incarnation, that Jesus is God the Son. This they cannot accept. So Christian gospel workers all over the world have been armed with clear language and conceptions of the Trinity and of the incarnation of the Son of God, largely in part because of these Christological battles that happened after Constantine's conversion, beginning with Athanasius' battle against Arianism. And we are able to labor for the gospel and strive to bring unsaved neighbors to confess rightly Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Many of them have never heard of Athanasius. Maybe you've never heard of him and are ignorant of the debt that we owe to him and to, uh, to the others that worked hard to defend Orthodox Christology, the doctrine of Christ from those early centuries. But in heaven, you're going to meet Athanasius and you're going to meet others that labored for right doctrine and God will reveal the dimensions and details of the story, this battle for the truth. And in heaven, we will join with Athanasius in bending our knees to Jesus Christ as truly God, not worshiping many gods, but worshiping one God in three persons. Now, we're going to talk at a later time about the details of Athanasius, but there are some things about that battle that we need to understand right now for our purposes as we're seeking to give an overview of these years, and then God willing, later we'll be able to circle back and go into details about some of these heroes of the faith. But Athanasius was born in the year... 298, he became a deacon and the, a deacon and the right-hand man to Alexander, Bishop of Alexandria, when the theological battle against Arianism threatened, threatened to rip Constantine's vision of a unified Roman Empire under Christianity apart, he called the Great Council of Nicaea in the year 325, and those 300 bishops attended, including Alexander. Athanasius was there as his helper. Now, Arianism lost badly at the Council of Nicaea. Arianism was trounced. And there was a creed written, the Nicene Creed, which still stands as the pattern of orthodoxy today. It says this, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made in heaven and on earth, who for us men and our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered and the third day rose again, and ascended into heaven, from thence he will come to judge the quick and the dead. And we believe in the Holy Ghost. And those who say there was a time when he was not, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, 
or out of another substance or thing, or the Son of God is created, or changeable, or alterable, all of those doctrines are condemned by the Holy Catholic, that means universal, and apostolic church. So that's the work that they did. And everyone assented at the Council of Nicaea. All the bishops except two agreed to the statement. And those two were sent into exile. Now, I find that ominous, that if you don't agree with what the council comes up with, you are sent into exile, etc., by the power of the Roman emperor. So how we should deal with heresies and with heretics, that's something that took a long time to figure out. But at that point, political power was turned against them. Now, Alexander died in 328. Athanasius took his place and began to do the battle. And little by little, Arianism started to become ascendant. Many of the bishops that signed off on the Nicene Creed were not willing to use that creed to declare anyone to be a heretic. And so more and more, Arianism won the day, and Athanasius had to battle for right doctrine. And we're going to talk at a later time about his courageous struggle, about his five exiles, and about how he reached the point where it seemed like he was the only one left. The only one left. Athanasius against the world. And we're going to talk about that. But the gospel eventually won. Athanasius stood firm by his writings and by his teaching and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the true doctrine of Jesus Christ as fully God, fully man, and then the doctrine of the Trinity was established. And the true gospel spread widely, started to be spread by missionaries more and more uh, once these issues were resolved. There were other councils that had to battle. There were four councils altogether, what we call uh, Christological, the Christological controversy, how, who is the person of Christ? Those four councils, after the Council of Nicaea in the year 325, there was a final council at Chalcedon in 451. And between those two, there would be two more, a council at Constantinople in 381 and the council at Ephesus 431. These four councils hammered out the doctrine of the Incarnation and the doctrine of the Trinity, understanding the Godhead and Jesus' full and genuine humanity and the relationship between the two. At Constantinople, Apollinaris's idea that Jesus had a divine soul that came from heaven that displaced his human soul, that was rejected, in favor of a clear and full assertion of Jesus' full humanity. He was truly, fully human. At the Council at Ephesus, in the year 431, the council addressed Nestorius's view, supposedly it was his view, that the two natures of Christ were in some sense conjoined, like you could imagine two different pieces of wood glued together. Though Nestorius may not have used the best language or imagery to describe the relationship between the human and divine natures of Christ, the machinery of imperial politics ended up destroying him, declaring him to be a heretic. The council de uh, declared him and his views heretical. The emperor at that time, Theodosius II, was pressured to have him banished, and he died in official disgrace. However, his ardent followers never accepted his designation as a heretic. And it's unclear whether Nestorius and his followers actually were heretics or merely misunderstood and slandered because of the imperial politics of the day. This is important because Nestorius's followers fled to Persia 
and founded the Nestorian Church. And this movement showed amazing vitality in missions, going as far as Malabar and India and Turkestan and all kinds of places with the gospel. Nestorian Christians were hugely influential in the realms of Persian monarchs and then of the Abbasid Caliphate. Between the years 780 and 823, Nestorian missionaries even made it as far as Tibet and central China. It's amazing that, given the millions of Chinese Christians that are alive today, it was Nestorians who first brought the gospel to China. Even the court of Genghis Khan and his successors were strongly influenced by the Nestorians. If they were heretics, it's not worth us talking about right now at all. But if they actually were true Christians, they were going to meet them in heaven. And there was already a movement of Christianity in Persia before Nestorius' followers went there. So my friend Zane Pratt has written about the Nestorians. Ironically, Nestorianism is the name of a heresy which Nestorius did not believe and of a church movement that Nestorius did not start. Isn't that ironic? We're going to find out the truth of all of this when we get to heaven. But the Nestorians took the gospel along the Silk Road into the inner regions of China and Tibet long before Hudson Taylor groaned over those inland regions in the 19th century. It's an exciting story. We're going to meet these brothers and sisters, I think, in heaven. Other missionary heroes faithfully preached the true gospel during this era as well. We're going to learn all about them in heaven. You've heard of Patrick, like St. Patrick's Day, March 17th. But Patrick uh, went, was the first to bring the gospel to Ireland. He was born into a Christian family in Roman Britain, but we don't know exactly where or when he was born, perhaps sometime around the year 389. He was not serious about his faith as a teenager, it seems. And at age 16, he was carried off as a captive to Ireland. For at least six years, he was a slave in Ireland, tending flocks and pondering the state of his soul. It was during these years that his faith deepened, and he began dedicating himself to long nights of prayer. There's a lot we don't know about the next number of years of his life, but he eventually made his way back to his home in Britain and was greeted by his family with overwhelming shock and joy. But soon after he settled back in with them, he received a dream in which there was a letter inscribed, The Voice of the Irish. In the dream, he heard the babies of Ireland pleading with him to come tell them about Christ. We beseech you, holy youth, to come and walk with us once more, they cried out to him in his dream. Patrick heeded the call and returned to Ireland. There's great difficulty in un unraveling truth from myth when it comes to Patrick. Legend has it that he drove the snakes of Ireland into the sea to their destruction. Patrick himself wrote that he raised people from the dead. 12th century hagiography places the number as high as 33, some of whom it seems had been dead for many years. He seems to have prayed for food for some starving sailors that were moving across the land, and a herd of pigs miraculously appeared to feed them. How much of this is truth and how much is myth, we don't know. But we do know that he did bring the gospel to Ireland. And there will be no place for myths when we find out the story in heaven of what he actually did to bring the gospel to Ireland. In any case, Patrick's own writings confirm the arduous and dangerous nature of his mission as he faced constant opposition from fellow clergy and from armed foes. His autobiographical writings show a deep level of piety, of humility, of brokenness over his own sins and reliance on Christ. And he established many of his converts in monasteries 
though he himself was not a monk. Now the legacy of the Irish monks is immense. For in the centuries that followed, many Irish monks went out to evangelize all over Europe. Their commitment to both missions and to scholarship has led one man, Thomas Cahill, to write a book entitled How the Irish Saved Civilization. While barbarian armies were sacking Rome and other urban centers of learning and burning what they saw as worthless scrolls of paper, the Irish monks were diligently saving those scrolls and copying ancient Greek and Latin manuscripts, both pagan and Christian. Without their tireless labor, much of what we know about ancient world history of the Greeks and of the Romans would have been lost forever. But not only that, Irish monks went out from Ireland with the gospel of Jesus Christ, burning with zeal for their Savior. They established monastic communities all over Europe and used them as bases from which to evangelize the pagan tribes surrounding them. The most famous monastic center was Iona, established in the year 562 by the Irish monk Columba. Iona was a tiny, windswept, rocky island off the western coast of Scotland, only one and a half miles wide by three miles long. Columba was a man of striking personality, a born leader, forceful with a quick wrath for injustice to the weak and with a tenderness to the poor, with a simple and deep faith in God, according to historian Kenneth Scott Latourette. Columba set up the pattern of the monastic order, focused on study, writing, praying, fasting, and bold evangelism to the lost. One powerful display of Columba's commitment to winning lost souls for Jesus came. In the year 565, he sought to gain access to the leader of the fierce Picts in northern Scotland. The name of that king was King Brede, and Brede refused to see him, locked the gates of his fortress against him. So Columba and his monks began to sing vespers outside the gate. The pagan druid priests inside the gates tried to outshout them, but Columba had the more powerful voice. Then Columba took to fasting and prayer. Eventually, perhaps out of shame, King Brede opened the gates and let him in and listened to his message. Columba eventually led Brede and most of those picks to faith in Christ. That's the kind of zeal that Columba and his Irish missionaries had for the gospel. And they set up missionary communities all over Europe, not just in the British Isles. When the redeemed in heaven assemble to learn how the gospel spread in those years, Christ will display more vividly and with more breadth and accuracy than any words of historians could possibly capture how many people were led to faith in Christ by those Celtic missionaries. And we're going to meet those brothers and sisters when we get to heaven. As we conclude today, I want you to go into your week knowing that there's nothing new under the sun. Whatever it is that you are going through, there are Christians who have come before you who have dealt with similar struggles and through the power of Christ have overcome them and you will as well. We also know from Scripture that God went ahead of them and prepared good works for them to do in their generation. And they did them for the glory of God. In the same way, God has gone ahead of you and has prepared good works for you to do for His glory. Go and do them by the same power of the Spirit that was in them. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes 
and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.